Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Antonio Nunez. Antonio is a brand strategist, corporate storyteller, and author of eight books on storytelling. His clients include Novartis, BBVA Bank, HP, PwC, and the World Bank. His online course on storytelling is one of the top sellers on the Domestica platform, with over 25,000 students. I used to think storytelling was a skill completely grounded in reality, but Antonio's work has taught me I'm very wrong, because now I know that storytellers should use magical objects, that our religion is narcissism, and our spiritual animal is a donkey with very large ears. Ladies and gentlemen, Antonio Nunez. Antonio, welcome to the show. Hi, Francisco. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So uh, I, it's probably worth me explaining the donkey part and uh, that I mentioned at the intro. So <laughs> at the beginning of your domestic course, you talk about Rocinante. Uh, I don't know yeah. what the name of that of that donkey is in English, but that's the one, that's the donkey from Don Quixote, right? That's correct, yeah. yeah. And what is the story behind it? Why, why do you have a little Rocinante on your desk? Uh, so it, it is uh, something that I, I acquired. It's a craft that I acquired in Mexico during one of my, of my uh, travel trips there. And uh, it's, it's a part of a, of a traditional Mexican craft uh, that I have on my desk uh, all the time. And I also have uh, two other crafts from Granada, Spain, that are precisely uh, Don Quixote and, and Sancho. But that one is a, is a donkey that is, it's an alebrije. And alebrije is, is that technique, uh, that craft technique in, in Mexico. Uh, it's beautiful, it's colorful, and uh, the whole idea, it has a story behind it. It's a myth. Uh, that basically it, 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 it's uh, animals with uh, impossible shapes and combination of animals. So you can have a rabbit uh, hybrid with a dog or a whale and, and they paint that. And the story behind that was uh, a craftsman that uh, uh, he lose his, his side and became blind and started to imagine and craft and shape all those animals from his soul. And his soul starting to produce those beautiful, impossible creatures. Yeah. Oh, well, I have two very young daughters, and uh, <laughs> I think it's probably fair to say that most of the most of the toys today 
could be called alebrijes because at least the 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 male toys uh they the shapes are not grounded in reality like yeah. men to- with women it's slightly less bad than perhaps it used to be in in our in my childhood um although to be fair now i remember the he-man and gi joe toys and those are not particularly grounded in reality um, <laughs> but but anyway the the, the narcissism narcissism quote i believe it's from woody allen right and he says he's when he grew up he stopped um believing in judaism and started becoming uh, believing in narcissism and and it's something i've talked about this plenty of times but i think a line you used in your course is that the the more personal it is the more universal it is when it comes to stories yeah 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 that is something that you know most of my clients are corporate clients and hence people that are educated and trained in the idea that being professional means to be extremely dry and aseptic and neutral when you are delivering your message and and you know also most of i would say the biggest fight that i have when when i'm i'm training or i'm uh working with projects like that is to convince people that they need to be more personal and, and that that the more personal they are, uh, the more universal and the better they will reach uh, to their audiences. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that it seems counterintuitive to most people, which is that when you are talking about lots of people, particularly if it's hundreds of people or thousands of people, I think our brain just really struggles to find one person and care about that one person. Whereas if it's one person you're talking about that somehow represents everyone else, then it's easier. You know, we, we can cope with that. So I've I've used before when, when I was giving a keynote or or putting videos on social media, I used the uh, where's Wally or where's Waldo uh, metaphor, you know, because th- that super crowded page is it's very difficult for our brain to latch onto. Like we, we don't, you just can't care about that. There's just too much noise, but identify one person or in this case, Wally. Um, and then it becomes easy to say, oh, okay, so that person, I can be like that person, or maybe I'm not like that person. So, so yeah, that's, I think that's a pretty important one. And strangely, most people take a very long time to come to that, to that conclusion. Yeah. Well, we we tend to think, especially executives, right, that it happens the same thing, uh, a universal versus personal with another one that is global versus local. And it happens the same. The more local your story is, uh, the more universal it becomes. And this is really counterintuitive because you have the big filter of culture. And people say, oh, I don't know, uh, telling a story about my little village in the south of Spain where we produce wine, etc., will not be universal. And, and you know, the more specific and local you are, the more universal it becomes. Yeah. I think that might be because of how difficult it is to add details when you're trying to be global or when you're trying to zoom a little out of what actually happened. Because I think in your case, you're from Jerez and, and you talk about how your family had a business and they, they, they worked with wine and there's perhaps some expectation that you were going to follow into that business. Now, other places have 
families who have businesses, who have people that are might be expected to follow into those businesses. I, I, and I think that's what people get confused. The, the part that is, you know, Jerez and wine and whatever peculiarities of your region, those are just there to make it sound like a real place. Because if you say, in this village where there was a family, it's like, okay, fine, this sounds like a fairy tale. This is not real. Mm. So I, maybe I shouldn't think of it as real and, and, and maybe respect whatever truth is coming out of that story as real because it doesn't sound real. It sounds like a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. That's why I always say that, that there is a couple of details in your stories that are key to build credibility. Uh, and, and, you know, some, 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 again, the part of, of uh, a lot of corporate uh, cultures is it's about remove all the details and go to the essence. And, and basically, I always joke that that is the risk is, is throwing the baby through the bathtub, right? Because uh, you are trimming the key detail that will make your entire presentation or story or keynote or whatever credible to the people that are listening to you. Yeah, no, I agree. And in, in your... Oh, actually, before I start getting to some of the, the specific elements that you teach, I wanted to ask, because I'm not sure I understood this correctly, what exactly do you call projective attention? Uh, well, it's it's the one that is uh, activated by storytelling and uh, parts of our uh, in our brain that that creates an identification. Is the idea that you are you, when you are in that mode, that attention mode, what you are going to do basically is to walk in the main character's shoes and think, what would I do if I was him or her? Uh, that's why when I'm again in, cor in corporate environments, I always says that that any story should be understood as a case case study, and our attention and our brain pays attention to that cultural case study. You pay attention to the story because you want to learn. Okay, if I am confronted to that same situation, the situation that this character is confronting, what would I do? What should I do? What is the cultural reward for that? Or the cultural punishment, right? So if I do this, I will be isolated. I will, you know, uh, have more taxes or, you know, I will be promoted the opposite or I will be. So you pay attention because of that and you that uh, projecting your individuality and your personality into the main character ones. Yeah, I believe that the the Heath brothers from Made to Stick, they, talk, they talked about how one of the most important things that stories do is, well, one of them is inspiration and the other one is simulation. So it's this idea mm -hmm. to, to put ourselves in the character's shoes. And I had another guest on the podcast a while back, uh, Jason Reed, and he said, I think he called storytelling the original, uh, the original virtual reality tool. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, right. So one of the things that um, that you, you you talked about is when you're talking about structure, is actually I think it's probably useful if I put down uh, if I if I say here what your definition of story is at least the one I've come across in in your course, and I believe it was that a story is a communication tool. Stru uh, structured in a sequence of events that appeals to our senses and emotions. And when exposing conflict, it reveals a truth that brings meaning to our lives. I, mean, I just want to pick some of these things apart as we go through, but I thought it was worth having it in there. So one of the structures that you talked about that, that sounded very familiar to begin with, and then it didn't, was from Vladimir Prop. Um, and if I, if I remember it correctly, it was uh, challenge, mentor, magical object, learning, battle, and reward. 
Have I got that right? Yeah, correct. Well, yeah. Okay, cool. So it sounds a bit like the hero's journey, but there are some parts of it that are not the hero's journey. And and I think some of them are fairly clear, you know, challenge, mentor, I think learning, battle, reward. They, they sort of, t they map out to other story structures that I've come across. The magical object was one that I don't think I had seen it that way. So, so I wanted to ask you about that. So how do you define the magical object? Uh, I would say that it's uh, anything that helps the main character to confront his or her own fears and his uh, lack of preparation or research or education uh, when, it's, uh, when, when they are confronting the conflict and they are confronted with what they have to overcome, the challenge. <clears throat> Uh, and I think that it was designed by uh, that sto by stories uh, uh, in general to, and I say that it's magical because sometimes they are not real things. I mean, if you are given uh, uh, Excalibur uh, spade, of course, uh, sword, uh, sorry, uh, it will it will help you to to fight, right? It's that is a very direct thing. But normally uh, they are magical because they want to to have a power or to transfer a power to the, to the owner that it's, it's, uh, it's not natural. It's, it's something that it's, uh, amazingly powerful because you probably are amazingly uh, scared of confronting the, the, your conflict. So, you know, uh, I have a lot of examples of that. And that's why I, I do think that that whenever stories are uh, dealing with uh, deep fears and that deep universal fears, there is that little help of that little object that can be an object or it can be a specific karate technique, let's say Karate Kid, right? It, the movie, and that is, that is one example where the kid learns that there is one specific way to uh, basically beat any uh, any any kind of enemy, no matter if it weights uh, three times more your weight, uh, you will be able to do it if you use that. Or a more European example, uh, Asterix and Obelix, where again, they have that magical potion that they drink. And the minute that they drink it, uh, they, they transform their bodies into amazing warrior bodies, no matter uh, what, what if you're in shape or not, you will be able to beat the Romans. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that it's a very smart way to empower anyone that has fears and insecurities to confront any, any challenge. I think it's fair to say that the crane technique from the Karate Kid would never work in real life and would get your ass <laughs> kicked mightily if you try it. <laughs> but no, what, what I think is really interesting about a magical object uh, because is that, as you said, there are there are ones that are very clearly a magical object, like a magical sword or something along those lines, or a magical ring, as in the case of the Lord of the Rings. But how they're when they're used as a representation um, or even a plot device, but they don't have the only meaning they have is metaphorical or is in the mind of the character. So the, the example that came to mind as you were describing it was the from from Kung Fu Kung Fu Panda. There's that scroll that supposedly has magical powers and the scroll actually is blank. 
there's no nothing in the scroll and the scroll is just there as a sort of a token of what he needs to, of the character needs to learn and and you had one example that i thought was incredible uh, and i would never have gone there necessarily which was <laughs> the wall that that america is go- was going to build that mexico was going to was going to pay for and that got me thinking so when you when you talk to people in the corporate world about about storytelling and if you ever teach them that type of structure would you recommend that they they find some sort of object where there can be a representation of something that shows a turning point in the story yeah yeah i always do that 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 is part of let's say the recipe if i can apply that that recipe and and i've worked with many politicians and many political parties and you have examples of people that are really uh, by the book using that. I'm thinking, for example, Lula da Silva in Brazil, when he had that political program that was called Bolsa Familia, uh, that basically it was, uh, the, the aim was to remove people from poverty by giving a, a, a minimum uh, um, amount of money to every single family. And, and for, Several years, it appeared to be working. And, you know, international organisms and, and organizations were, were uh, sanctioning the validity of that strategy. And it was said that there was a specific amount of millions of Brazilian people that were not in poverty anymore, thanks to Bolsa Familia. And he spent his entire life in every single conversation going back to Bolsa Familia as, as his magical object. So... I think that it's a very, a very powerful way to make one story tangible, especially if you can see that magical object in reality. So it can be a car or it can be a, a, a political idea or program. But if you have the opportunity of make something tangible, that, that is important. And we are seeing the same thing in advertising, right? And, and advertising campaigns where sometimes they create something that was not tangible to represent an idea. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, uh, one campaign uh, that uh, was targeting uh, drivers and and the whole magical idea was to create a, a creature that a human being with a shape that would avoid or would overcome any kind of car crash. And they recreated that with a computer. And obviously the shape of that human being is, is horrible. And, and, uh, it, it, they even showcase and replicate that and exhibit that, that human being just to show us, Hey, it's impossible that your body can overcome certain kind of car crash. Therefore you need to drive more responsibly. Yeah. So, yeah. One, one example that came to mind was from Sarah Blakely, who is the founder of Spanx. And she she uses her origin story on a regular basis. And she always talks about the... Well, actually, you could argue she has two magical objects because the whole origin story is about this white pants she bought. And she, you know, she didn't have anything to wear underneath them because the underwear would show through. So then she decided to wear some leggings and then she had to cut the leggings. It never worked. And then she eventually created the product that Spanx started selling in the beginning, which was this sort of legless leggings for women. Clearly, I don't know how these things are called, undergarments for women. But she also talked about how she used to go on sales uh, calls and she always had her lucky red backpack. And she talked about the red backpack over and over. I think in or in the original 
website there was a, a bread backpack that appeared somewhere and when she pre gave presentations she used the images she always talked about red back the red backpack so it informed their 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 visual branding uh so i, I guess that, that would be an example of the of the magical object not necessarily only in a story but used beyond beyond the story yeah 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 there are plenty of them i i love to analyze how they work another one that is one of my favorites it's pen that were used to sign very famous peace treaties or you know again political political documents and and even there is a movie uh o contador de historias the storyteller uh in a brazilian movie amazing uh, movie and uh, uh, there is an example where someone in the street is selling a very plain normal uh sort of french big kind of uh, pen very affordable for everyone and he's selling as if that was the pen used to sign a, a very famous uh, political treaty in 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 brazil uh, so I, I think that interchanging, for example, uh, uh, depends once you have signed by two political leaders is another ritual that, uh, that, that is very popular. So we have plenty of examples in all, in all kinds of fields. Yeah. I feel slightly embarrassed now because I am Brazilian and I don't think I've watched the storyteller, which seems sort of unforgivable given what I spend most of my time doing. Um, a couple of other things on the on the magical object, and then I'll, I'll move on. Um, a friend of mine said that he started using that as a, as an exercise to try and get stories out of people. So when he's doing a workshop, he's going to tell them, "Can you please bring an object that means something to you?" I think we get mm -hmm. it. the police. The police is behind. <laughs> it's outside your door. Hopefully they'll give us enough time to finish this. Um, so yeah, so he started asking people, bring an object that means something to you. And then people will bring whatever object it is and they'll say, okay, well, tell me the story behind that object. Or when did that start meaning something to you? And instead, then instead of just explaining why it means something, people go, oh yes, when I was five, my grandfather, whatever. And then then you get mm -hmm. the story. And, and the other thing is to do with how people would use that because I've seen a lot of storytellers, and, and this is an opinion I mostly share, being very much against props, for example, right? You're telling the story. It's an oral story. You're just telling it. They they don't like the idea of a physical prop because they say the moment the prop comes out, instead of you making a move inside my head, you're now a storyteller on a stage or or whatever, performing a story, and that has sort of broken that broken that magic. Um, do do you tell people to if they can use the magical object as a physical object to use that or not really. Um, it, I think that it depends on the personality and the kind of work. Sometimes uh, my my work goes beyond the idea of helping people to design the story, or helping corporation to design the stories, or helping the political candidate to 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 to. I help them to tell them once they have they have uh, created it. And everyone agrees in the organization. So for in those times is where you need to have and, and understand what is that person's uh, personality and individuality. And you need to sort of put into consideration if you, if that person will feel better by having that object in, in, in his or her hands or, or, you know, it will, it will trigger a more authentic, uh, let's say, uh, delivery, story delivery. 
So it, I don't have like a rule for that. It is true, and I agree with you that that sometimes whenever you imagine that we are projecting images uh, in a PowerPoint or a Keynote or whatever uh, software, some people use them very smartly, and you you pay attention to that image just for a second, and then you go back to to the storyteller, and some others basically use them to 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 be behind them and to, uh, a sort of shield and and not showing themselves so so you i think that that you know i first need to know a little bit more about the person and try to predict the way that they they are going to use that that object yeah the way i try to they usually tell people what to do with with images and slides and physical objects is ideally use them for everything else just not the story so if the story is going to be two or three minutes in your presentation or you know a few stories will be two or three minutes in your presentation just tell the story don't have the slides showing what's happening in the story or anything like that but then use images images not a whole bunch of text for pretty much mm -hmm. everything else that you can like if you have a good image for whatever you're talking about have the image by all means but don't say you know when i grew up in jerez my family wine you don't need a picture of jerez a picture of wine a picture, like we know what wine is we know what family is we don't need um, okay oh, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm so sorry uh, right. uh, i'm i'm, I'm, I'm I'm living in New York, and you know New York is a, that constant noise in the street. Yes. No matter, no matter. Yeah. Well, it, it happens. It happens. Right. So, so another thing you said, and again, I don't think I've come across this before. Um, so I wanted to understand this a bit better. So you were talking about the meaning of stories. I mean, in Spanish, it's a sentido, but I think meaning would be the most proper meaning, or point would be the most appropriate translation. And then there was a there was a line that said that the the story is a tool of social cohesion or of social social coercion. So mm -hmm. can you just talk ab about that a bit? Yeah, I, that's why I always says that any story, if if it's a good story, will have a sort of a stick or a carrot, right? Which is it will teach you a cultural truth. Normally, the good ones and the ones that are, you know, touching is because they are telling you a cultural truth that is not true anymore. So the entire group or country or whatever or ethnicity uh, where that story is resonating, it, it's, it's shifting in the way that they understand a cultural truth. And uh, let's say, put it as an example to be more concrete here in the US, uh, we will never have a black man as a, as a president of the United States. That is a cultural truth that was true till a certain moment. Uh, so any story that revolves about that cracking truth, that truth that maybe is not, is starting not to be true in all kinds of situations that will have, uh, attached in the story a reward. Uh, meaning the character confront that, the main character confront that truth and it's brave enough to challenge it. And then it will have the carrot, the benefit, maybe the social rewards of being an admired person for the rest of his or her life, right? Or the opposite, uh, you have the stick and is if you challenge that, that cultural truth and, and it's, it's, it, if you dare to do that, then you will be punished and maybe the, the punishment will be exactly the opposite. You will be ostracized. You will be uh, a second class citizen for the rest of your life. You will be removed of any kind of privilege or right. 
uh, etc., or you will live alone for the rest of your life. So, so that's why I say that the tool, it's it, the story, it, it's both a cohesion uh, uh, tool to create a common ground, a common culture, a common language, uh, common values, and reinforce them all the time. Every time that we tell a story, we are reinforcing the, the validity of, of that cultural truth. Or the opposite is like, hey, by the way, don't you dare challenge that idea because if you do listen, that is what happens to this or that or that or that person that, that dare to do that. And then it's where you have the coercion. You are, you are, you are part of the group, but you are obeying blindly the, the law. Yeah. And, uh, something else that, that I, I don't believe this is. You invented this, but uh, but you're definitely one of the first people that I've seen talk about this. Is the is the very defined types of conflict? So I think you talked about three different types of con of, of conflict, and they are internal, external, and uh, a relation or relational. Mm -hmm. okay, so well, inter yeah. internal is obviously. I mean, that, so that's that's an obvious enough uh, conflict. Um, external i think it's essentially something that's happening in the world is not an it's not a feeling is not you know it's an actual problem in the world so you know the avengers is mostly about external conflicts whereas yeah. i know most pixar movies are probably more about internal conflicts than external at least but the relationship type um can you just talk a bit about that one yeah, that, that one, uh, is the, the kind of story and conflict that illustrates whenever you have to deal with someone else and that someone else can be a peer, can be an enemy, can be, uh, any, it, it can be a different, uh, R or a, an enemy army. So it doesn't, you don't need to, it is not individual to individual. But it has to do with how do you deal with your with your relationships? How do you deal with your father or or, or with your mom once you are not a little kid anymore? You need to renegotiate the entire relationship, and you have a lot of challenges by when when doing so. So so that that kind of uh, conflict uh, it's extremely rich because it's it's very social, and sometimes there it's impossible to illustrate them without also illustrating what is uh, the character internal conflict or conflicts because uh, normally those those relationship conflicts uh, uh, it, they have to do with internal wounds uh, of every single individual internal conflicts yeah so if the if the if the relationship conflict or the relational conflict has to do with doesn't matter if it's one person or you know hundreds of thousands from a different army as per your example would the external one be, for example, you know, you're trying to climb a mountain? That that's an external conflict. And 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 I've I would have seen this. I don't think it was you, but someone uh, I know talking about how the external conflicts are the least interesting of the two, or at least powerful, well, at least. I I I don't agree with that. I think uh, I think that they can be as important. Uh, for example. Uh, you know, you have the environment and you have nature and you have uh, dealing with nature has been, you know, a human uh, battle since uh, since the beginning of, of time. And they can be extremely uh, challenging and important because it's your life there uh, in the line. So, so, uh, yeah, I think that they can they can be as important when you moved into the movies uh, realm. 
people say, okay, so basically you're talking about action movies, right? As you were saying, you have to climb a mountain or you have to uh, fly here or there. You have to, but Does, those kind of... It doesn't have to be action, right? Uh, Erin yeah, no. Brockovich arguably would be, I think, an external conflict and it's not, it's a company yeah. or it's, you know, uh, it was kind of an environmental movie. But, but yeah, I, I would have thought that as an external conflict. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, they're, they are equally important and equally powerful when you're creating your story. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, so my feeling here and feeling is a word that I, I, it just came out, I think appropriately because I think my instinct is that the internal conflicts or the, or the relational conflicts are more likely to make a story relatable than the external one, because if the external one doesn't also trigger a relational conflict or internal conflict, you're either relating to that specific thing or you have to relate to something very similar to that. So maybe you have fought some, I don't know, bigger power, like she was fighting, um, I don't remember what company exactly she was fighting against, but, and if you can't do that, if you can't find that connection in your life, the story might say less to you. Whereas if you have a problem with your family, I mean, that's one of the most the easiest things in the world to relate to if it's you being afraid you being you being disappointed or whatever it might be those are feelings we all have whereas the, ex the, the external circumstance of the story might be slightly less common i think that would be my instinct yeah 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 i i, I agree but then there is another factor that you have to take into consideration, which is sometimes uh, entire societies project their emotions and conflicts into uh, into those external conflicts, or or those. And I always use the very clear example of King Kong, the movie, and uh, it happened in a cultural moment and and in, a, in an economic moment where everyone was extremely afraid of uh, an economic crisis and uh, apparently the movie people tells you that every single time that you have uh, uh, several months or years where the blockbusters are uh, the main character it's a big monster they will tend to say that it, it is always uh, related to a big fear that is going on in that society and everyone is projecting the uh, that fear or conflict into that uh, monster. So and and you know King Kong is something that would uh, it's completely fictional and impossible, but it works because maybe people are putting there a meaning that is not so literal and it's more metaphorical. Yeah, I wonder what it says about our society that King Kong versus Godzilla has come out this year. So I don't know if this is the pandemic or or something else, but uh, seems like an appropriate movie for a time when everybody's concerned about something. I I thought uh, in this uh, in the same way in the same fashion. I, I was thinking that it's uh, amazing how Hollywood now is basically remaking and remaking and remaking uh, the classic uh, uh, superheroes stories, and it's mostly mixing and ma and matching very traditional characters or maybe injecting a little external thing here or there but uh, it's surprising how how literal and and copycats those movies are and it's also surprising how massively successful they are uh, in this time 
It's interesting with the whole superhero genre because they finally, Marvel at least, seems to have finally cracked how to do it. And now they have no shortage of material. You know, whereas whereas DC has been giving us a Superman movie or a Batman movie every few years, uh, Marvel has proven with like Black Panther that you can make a movie with a character that is not mainstream, that it wasn't necessarily a particularly good character, to be honest, <laughs> on the comics. And and you know they have fifty years of characters that have relations between them, that have a rich mythology, that are always very symbolic. So it, it will be interesting to see how long they can keep milking that very profitable um, type of movie because uh, you know it's been quite a while now since the first ones came out that were really successful and they don't seem to be stopping anytime soon so it'd be interesting to see when marvel starts going back on the the you know doing a new avengers movie uh, you know that re- rethinks the whole thing that's when you th- you figure out okay well then i think it's about done now but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that what, what basically what they are doing is discovering that maybe what were what, what the, those characters that were extremely, uh, you know, basic and very basic motivations, they are digging deeper into their internal conflicts, and then you have movies like Joker, right, where going deep into into the characters' internal conflicts suddenly illuminates one side of that of that icon that was merely a facade and suddenly it becomes uh, humanized and even more interesting as a superhero. Uh, so it's the same thing with Cruella uh, that is the same. Well, let's dig into this horrible character and see why she was like she was. And and it's, it is very successful because that genre normally would touch that in a very superficial way instead of you know a deep dive into those internal conflicts and i think that that is uh, that is what it's creating uh, the the kind of remake that i am more interested uh, in yeah yeah and and something else that <clears throat> i so so this is something that i i don't know if you have a particularly strong opinion on but it, but it's something that i've seen a lot of people be very much against and based on some of the stuff i've seen in your course you don't seem to be and, and it's the sort of debate about if to to get the benefits of a story you need to actually tell a story you know a sequence of connected events you have a character you have a conflict you have all those things that you know grounded in time and place or if you can just use elements of a story. So if you pick those things out, but the way you're telling them are not actually a moment in time as a lot of stories are. And the reason I ask this is because you give a lot of examples of the types of, of common stories that most people need to tell. So you have the, you know, who am I? Why am I here? Um, the educational story, the visionary story, the values and action story, and the um, I know what you're thinking story. But a lot of your examples are designers and and people that are not necessarily you know traditional storytellers, and when they're what they're doing by a lot of people's conception of what a story is is not an actual story. You know, Philip Stark is one that most of the things he he talks about the conflict in his life, but it's sort of floating in space. It's not grounded in when I, compared to Alejandro in in Iriatu, that tells a very specific yeah. story about he used to sell eggs and then by four in the morning they were all sold and that's how he paid for his film studies. So the question here is, 
do you think that to get the benefits of a story, it needs to actually be a story? Or as long as you're using enough of those elements, you will get value out of, of communicating that way? Mm -hmm. Um yeah, well, in in the in the in the domestic course, uh, it's it's, tar it's targeting, uh, and, it, and all those examples are from creative leaders. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very tough to find images of someone telling a full story. I mean, and I did a, a lot of hours of research for that. So, I, so you're, I not, really... you're not obsessed by Philip Stark then? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. no, not at all. That, not at all. Right. But, uh, but basically, uh, it, it came down to which, which, which interviews were free, uh, free of rights and I could use for, for the course. And that's why they are not, I agree with you, uh, some of them are not completely full stories. But I always say that if you don't tell the full, if, if your story doesn't have all the ingredients to be a true, a true story, your message is, it's for sure going to be benefited by injected a couple of ingredients or three ingredients or whatever. So if you pay attention and your, your message, your information has the right sequence of events, you're benefiting from that. Maybe you lack uh, a conflict and then you don't have a story. But what it is for sure is that if you have, if you have paid attention to, to sequence of events or having a magical object or object or whatever, uh, yeah, it will, it will be a better message. I agree with you that if you don't have all the ingredients, it's not truly a story. It can be an anecdote. It can be a joke. It can be a piece of message that it's resonating a bit more with that. And that's one, one part. And then the other is that most of my clients are corporate clients, are, are companies, and they are a lot into sequential storytelling. So, uh, you know, you know, you, maybe you have to target uh, your, uh, employees and you have five, four, seven emails uh, to send about one single subject. And sometimes it's impossible to say, okay, you are going to tell the full story here. And, uh, you know, in movie terms, it, it's going to be a movie, a full movie, or it's going to be more a kind of TV show where you have different episodes and every single episode maybe doesn't make sense by itself. It needs to be completed by the meaning and the story ingredients that you are exposed in every in every single episode. So th that's that's why maybe uh, for me, uh, uh, most of my work is about sequential storytelling. And then you need you know that kind of of uh, storytelling structure and ingredients. Yeah, I think one example of the one example, a couple of examples about the story elements versus stories. For example, uh, Story Brand has made a name out of using story elements essentially to build websites. So you you know you have very clearly a conflict at the tagline, and then you know there's a character, there's a guide, and all of those things. But actually, you know, it's not a story; it's just a template for building a website that follows more or less the hero's journey. And and the other one is Steve Jobs because. In his presentations, and, and I've used this as an example when I'm trying to explain to people what a strategy story would look like. And Steve Jobs always had heroes and villains, but he also had the, you know, 
in the beginning we only had one computer so it was very easy to keep it um, to keep it updated but then we had all the uh, tablet and iPod and iPad and all these things and the cables and everything became a nightmare we just never knew what was updated what wasn't so we started thinking of a new solution and this was the iCloud and now our life is a lot simpler so it's not really a story but it's using very clearly a story structure to get that message across so so yeah um, but yeah, no, now, now understanding that <laughs> the creative choices somewhat imposed on you by what they were targeting in that, in that particular course, it makes more sense why those would be some of the examples that you, that you use there. Um, okay, listen, I, I would absolutely love to, to keep going into the weeds with you on this one, but, um, but I think that a child is about to be dropped in the middle of the street if, (laughs) if I don't, if I don't wrap this up. So if, if people want to see any of the work that you're, that you're doing these days, and obviously I guess all your books will be on Amazon and everywhere books are found. Um, but what, what is the best place to go find what you're up to? Uh, I have a website, it's antonionunes.com, and in antonionunes.com, uh, I think that you can find uh, also my social media handles. So you can find me at Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, that is my go-to, yeah, antonionunes.com. Okay, I'll, I'll put that on the show notes. If, and if anyone wants to see what Rocinante looks like, then they can they can go to Domestica and uh, and buy buy your course and uh, and there will be plenty of the stuff we talked about today will be there but Rocinante will be there which is which is a very important part. Uh, <laughs> all right, thanks again for your time, Antonio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Francisco. Thank you for, for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves and until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little, and when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it, and it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn or visit my website, storypowers.com.